What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Lily Greer is a victim advocate and survivor from Australia. Her mother's life was stolen by her former partner in 2012, when Lily was just 13. Since then, Lily has never stopped searching for and advocating for her mom, Tina, no matter what comes next in her journey. Lily's narrative is one of tenacity and pure strength, and I'm honored she's willing to share it with us today. My name is Lily. I am 24 years old and I am from Australia. I asked my partner how he would describe me. The two things he said were determined and busy, which I would agree with. I would add to that by saying resilient. My mum and I had an extremely close relationship that's probably not as conventional as most people's childhoods. It was very complicated but we were very close. That was the main thread that shines through when I think about it. The back part of this story is that she actually didn't have custody of me for about six years. I was in custody of somebody else. During that time, we really fostered a relationship through writing letters to one another. She snuck me a secret phone, so we would talk to each other that way, and we were each other's lifeline. Also, me to my mum. I realize now that I'm older, I didn't know this at the time, but she didn't have any other support. We just got each other through every day, to be honest. She was an incredibly fun mom, just really willing to run around, jump on the trampoline and basically do whatever I did, which was really enjoyable as a child, you can imagine. I would describe her as my best friend. It was a battle to live together again and for her to have custody of me. So that was the whole focus of my life for six years. We had finally got there. My mum regained custody of me about six months prior to her actually going missing. During this time, she had left her partner. But as with most domestic violence relationships, it's very much so on and again, off again. She had left where she was living with him, secured a place for us. It was a really exciting time for us because The whole journey up until this point was focusing on living together. But as well as all of that excitement was a lot of stress and fear. She was in an abusive relationship with a dangerous man. We had got our own place and we lived in the house for about eight weeks. The house was being stalked. He had broken our door down. Our car was also vandalized. He was abusive as normal, trying to get her to come back. She was really holding it together. 
looking back, I don't know how we were actually so happy during this time because nightly our house was being stalked. It was pretty traumatizing just to go through that as a 13-year-old because my previous exposure to it was over the phone. So to actually have my physical self be in danger as well was quite scary as a child. It was a very intense time. The day that I last saw her, it was still happy. Like We were very optimistic, which is weird to say looking back. And we were super excited for all these new beginnings. I was just about to start high school. So we went to the shops with my friend and her mum, bought the ugly school shoes, the school uniform, all the necessary supplies. We didn't have much money. She had to do our washing at his house, which was very rural and remote in a property in Queensland, Australia. She dropped myself, my friend and my friend's mum off and was supposed to come back the next day to pick us up for a sleepover. Her birthday also was the following week. So initially people had said that she had ran away, but that was not the case as we'll soon find out. I was very young, so I ended up staying with a family that had that sleepover with. That wasn't a particularly safe household for me to live in. So following that, I ended up living with various uncles until 18. Jumping forward, she was classified as a missing person for 10 years despite it being very clear that her partner had murdered her. My contact with the case was only through the media. My family didn't have the tools to talk to me about it. There was no victim support at this time for me, which is another thing that I'm trying to get changed, especially for children. Because, But I think people discount how much kids understand. But I was reading the other day that kids at age 11 understand death as well as an adult. So there's no reason why you should be not talking to kids openly about death because it's a part of life. I think everyone was trying to shelter me. But the thing is, I overheard the abuse. My mom had called me at age 10 saying that she was going to die and saying her final goodbyes because he had a gun in the backyard and he was going to shoot her. So I had firsthand knowledge I was one of the only people that had the full understanding of the abuse that was happening. So to go from hearing everything firsthand, then to be cut out of the case completely and not told anything except for hearing it through the media is just such an extreme change. And I felt quite insulted. As a 13-year-old, obviously, it was quite public. My friends at school would be like, have they found your mum yet? Did she run away? The questions that you get asked are wild, especially by other kids. But then you've got another layer of all these people thinking that she's run off, discounting the seriousness of the situation. Overall, through the whole experience was the concept of ideal victim and victim blaming. I felt that my mum is a perfect example of both of these. She was in a relationship with a bad person. She did leave. That has been an overwhelming question that I always get asked. Why didn't she leave? It's like, you don't understand domestic violence. So, yeah, I felt that on a deeper level from even the people that are investigating it. I actually had no updates until I was about 18 to 20 from the police because I was so young. I was actually cut out of what was going on, which in itself was very traumatic. And I found out a lot of what was happening with my mum's case through the news and through the radio. I didn't have any support or updates coming to me. I had just assumed that there's going to be an inquest. 
in Australia, it goes to what's called the coroner's court and then they review it and decide whether it's to go to inquest, which is like a further investigation, or whether everything was sufficient and the case was investigated properly. There's three reasons why there would be an inquest in Australia. The overarching theme is that it's in the public interest. Falling under that is the body's never been found. There were suspicious circumstances. Having an inquest might be able to shed light on where the person is and what actually happened. And finally, that it will help future victims and prevent future deaths of similar contexts. So those are the three reasons why there would be an inquest. Once I started reading the coroner's report and seeing all these facts that are pretty hard for any normal person to believe that there's justice going on, I was certain there's going to be an inquest. The main suspect, the man that abused her for five years, the last person to see her, Les Sharman, known criminal gang member and violent person, was never interviewed by police, despite her phone being turned off in the property. A key part of why I can say his name and talk about this very openly with laws in Australia is because he actually died in 2018, six years after he murdered my mum. So the police had six years to interview him and conduct the case to their full ability with this man being alive. None of those things happened, which made the chances of finding out what happened a lot harder because he's dead. That's why we can talk about it and I have the actual legal right to say that he murdered her. I was distraught. A lot of people were happy in my circles that knew him. He had what's coming for him in karma, but he holds the key to this investigation. So not knowing what he knows, to be honest, I completely just lost it for about two days because I was relying on that interview which at this point I didn't even know didn't happen, but I was just relying on him feeling guilty or something coming from him. Essentially, he was never interviewed and not much was really done to look for her and to find her. But I've seen the man's criminal record and there is absolutely no reason why he couldn't be interviewed just based on his criminal record. It is mind-blowing to see someone's criminal record and then see it blank for the period that he murdered my mum. I don't see any reason why they couldn't have interviewed him. A lot of the blame was put on my mum for not leaving him and not placing a restraining order against him. The neighbours had years prior called the police and it's a very rural area. I'm not sure how it compares to America, but there's virtually no people. So for people and neighbours to be calling the police, it's like kilometres away from the next house. So the violence was really extreme. There had been neighbours witness my mum running down the road with blood all over her. A second incident was him trying to run her over with his car. On both of those occasions, she didn't tell them that he was abusing her. She wasn't the ideal victim. She was dating a gang member, so that automatically puts her lower on the ideal victim scale, I guess you could say. She just wasn't a priority despite being failed so many times. It's naturally assumed because there's so many open-ended questions with this case that there would be an inquest. Somebody was appointed to be the counsel assisting, which is like fact-finding the inquest. They investigate it as well and they see what did and didn't happen. The person that was appointed was a person I spoke to that said she didn't believe there needed to be an inquest, all of these conversations about domestic violence, and she didn't report it. That's the lady that was appointed originally. Thankfully, that's been changed, but 
even then, my lawyers advised me to not appeal that decision. You can only push so far until you're not taken seriously. I had spoken to people at the coroner's court and they said, well, she didn't advocate for herself. She didn't place this order. So the police couldn't do anything. And that's why they couldn't interview him ultimately, because there's no solid order in place against him. My initial thought was she has to live with him. She has nothing. And if she tells the police what's actually happening, he's right there. What's going to happen to her if he's already doing this? Surely she knows that her life's at risk. Quite often I was told, oh, you know, it's the time, like things have gotten better since then. It was 10 years ago, like it's not the officer's fault, it's nobody's fault. We didn't know enough about domestic violence. Whilst all of these views are still being perpetuated in the coroner's court and with the police, it is so triggering. So I get the first letter saying, her death could not have been prevented and it is not in the public interest to hold an inquest. I was like, what the fuck? You're joking me. Like, how are two people sitting here reading these facts and coming up with such different ideas about what is just and why deaths are preventable and what is in the public interest? I didn't have much contact with the media until about 2020. I had done a few small articles, but I also didn't feel comfortable talking about it. Essentially, in 2020, they put out a reward of $250,000 for anyone that might be able to find out what happened to her. So I had to do like press conferences and use the media to help with that. When I found out that there wasn't going to be an inquest and there wasn't going to be any further justice for her is when I needed to use the media a lot more. So that's what sparked the creating of the change.org petition. I needed to show that there is public interest And I thought the best way to do that would be a petition and to get really active in the media and start the Tina Greer project. I essentially dedicated seven months of my life just to that being my full-time job, raising awareness and advocating for her case and future victims that are going to go through these processes. We got like almost 23,000 signatures to say that her case should be reopened and investigated properly at inquest and see what went wrong. We have been granted an inquest. We were appealing. So you'd basically go from one coroner, then you appeal to the state coroner, then you would go to the attorney general and just keep going up and up in the legal process. But I got to like circumvent and meet the attorney general before it went to the state coroner. Thankfully, she was lovely. She wrote a letter supporting it, saying that, yes, it is in the public interest and this is going to have a significant impact. She was also the Minister for Women, so she has a really good understanding of domestic violence. I felt like up until this point, it's really clear that nobody had education about domestic violence and coercive control and what it actually looks like. Because if you had education about it, you would not be making these decisions. These are coroners. They decide how people die, why, and if their deaths should be investigated. Domestic violence is one of the leading causes of death here in Australia. Women are actually at the most risk for murder after they've left their partner. They're more likely to be murdered once they've left, which is really critical in most cases. So it makes sense that you would want to educate people on domestic violence that are making decisions about why people died every day on future and past victims of domestic and family violence. There's a lengthy coroner's report about what was done. I'll just give you a brief overview. It says, police contact in this matter represents a significant missed opportunity for intervention, failure to investigate matters and pursue criminal charges where appropriate, 
no evidence of additional steps being taken to protect Tina from further harm despite officers' assessment that it was likely she had and would experience violence in the relationship. Evidence of poor policing attitudes towards victims of domestic and family violence, which may have influenced their response. There's all of this evidence to suggest that the case isn't investigated properly and there's still a chance at finding her despite him being dead. There's still a chance of finding out what happened and hoping that people come forward. The change from missing person to homicide victim was a 10-year process. She has been declared dead and that her partner, Les Sharman, did murder her. That 10-year period was very bizarre because she was a missing person and there's no closure to that. Just the process in getting to get an inquest was really full on and just to have the contrast between having a missing person status and then having a murder status, it's very different in how you're treated. You kind of feel validated. I've known he murdered her this whole time, but it's very validating to have that written down. The media has shifted its tone in the past 10 years. At the beginning, it was very much focusing on the negative things about her, which was really hard to watch and hear. Since then, it's gotten a lot better, I think, because partly I've had a say in some of the things that get written. It's been really interesting, especially with everyone loving true crime and how popular it is at the moment. Depending on who I speak to, I feel like I lose a part of myself when I talk about it because I feel like it's almost being taken from me. You might feel like you have a good conversation with a journalist and then it will just get flipped around, cut up, and there's your five seconds on the TV. We spoke for 20 minutes and you didn't say any of the things that I thought were important, but that's the media. It was really critical in getting petition signatures and raising awareness, but it's also really difficult to navigate. You have to have really firm boundaries with journalists. You just feel like you're being used. That's not by all journalists, but I have felt an overwhelming sense of being used. Even just simple things like not sending you the questions before so you're not put on the spot, having a chance to think about them and put your words together because it's quite shocking some of the questions you can be asked. Things like lying about when something's going to be released. Another thing is not being told that it's going to be behind a paywall. So you put all of this out and talk about it, which is draining in itself then to hear that it's behind a paywall and it's like I only spoke about it because I wanted people who were in similar positions to hear about this. Small things like that just really can chip away at you. I found that being firm and having good boundaries with media people, it works. At the end of the day, they want your story. So they're probably going to listen to your requests and be somewhat delicate if you ask them to be, but you have to advocate for yourself. I have a good relationship with a journalist that has been following the case since the beginning. I can tell he's wanting to report on it for the right reasons. So people that are really genuine makes everything better. Working with other survivors or other victims that have had lived experience makes the whole process just so much more easy. You feel seen because a lot of the times you don't really feel seen. So yeah, the media, my relationship with them has been complicated. I feel like with the media, there needs to be a lot more education done with journalists about how to approach true crime. I feel like there's so many, she was murdered and this is their story. 
that's like kind of the mainstream approach to true crime. I think that there needs to be ethics courses, but a specific true crime course that journalists can take or additional training that they want to take on to cover content like this. Additional training that is tailored for true crime content would be really useful. Just being empathetic and really understanding the impact that it has on people sharing their stories. That's what I would change about the media and specifically true crime content. Making sure that you're telling the story for the right reasons. You're not trying to make a career off someone else's misfortune. I feel like you can see when someone has the right intentions in producing content and when someone doesn't, it's very clear to me. So just making sure you're in it for the right reasons. Hence why I love social media and being able to tell the story myself and talk about the facts. Obviously, it doesn't hit as wide of an audience, but it's really good for raising awareness about what's actually factual in the case. Then you've got the other side of social media, which is the trolls. With posting your own content, there's going to be people that comment and believe that they know the story and what's happening. The one I get is, how do you know he murdered her? I don't explain to most people. I just think, grow up. Look at my page at least. There's enough content for you to actually look through it all and you'll get an understanding of why I know he murdered my mum. Recently, I've come out and asked for people that knew him and were in the motorcycle gang, if they knew anything, to contact me. Along with that has been like death threats, people just saying, it's not worth it. Shut your mouth. You've got a big mouth. Other comments I'll get is like, oh, yeah, they fed her to the pigs or she's crocodile meat. Or, yeah, I know who did it. Just teasing information or like men are victims too. And it's like, I'm not saying men aren't victims. It's just everyone wants to have a say and they think that they know the legal system, they know the case. Again, like she deserved to die is another overwhelming theme that I get a lot in the comments. That was something they warned me if my mom's murder was ever going to go to trial. That would be the defendant's case basically is make her look like she deserved to die. I'm so sorry. You deserve peace. If you really isolate those comments, even that is so traumatic. That's so shitty of people that they would even begin to verbalize such awful things after everything you've been through from the justice system to the policing system to the media. I'm exhausted for you. Yeah, it's been interesting. Like you were just saying about the murder victim, that's going to happen at the inquest. Witnesses are called. I'm working on it in therapy, literally. I'm like, how am I going to sit through this and just hear all these opinions I feel like I'm the only one that has a full grasp and actually cares about this case being solved or some form of justice. If I don't sit through it, who's going to advocate for her? I have lawyers. Lawyers aren't there to protect and break down stereotypes. Their job is to solve the case. They're not advocates for missing persons, homicide and domestic violence. I feel like a lot of lawyers cater towards the judges and towards the system, especially with this case. I feel like I've stepped on a lot of toes and I've been really vocal. So there's already this opinion of she's too loud, just follow the rules type of thing. So it's been really difficult trying to work with people that do have your best interests, but they're also not experiencing it the same as you. It's their job and it's not their life, if that makes sense. But here's my problem. The systems are failing us. So why would we play by the rules of a failing system? Exactly. If we played by the rules, there wouldn't even be an inquest. 
the beginning of this week, I submitted a paper to Parliament about my experience with being a victim of crime and all of the recommendations I believe that need to be made through the system and like the various aspects of it. One of my recommendations is that families are actually given a legal reason as to why the case couldn't be investigated or further conducted because I still don't have that answer. It boils my blood even thinking about it. It's hard to change a whole system, but I believe that if you could change how people are educated before they start their jobs, that would be the easiest way to do it. In terms of the justice system, I have a lengthy list, but in short, I would say there needs to be an external review board for homicide and missing persons related cases so that these cases can be reviewed on a 12 to 24 month basis to ensure that the case is actually being investigated and being conducted properly. Because while an inquest serves to look at what has gone wrong, if these things were to be reviewed closer to when the crime was committed, I believe that there could be a lot more prosecutions and a lot more justice for victims if this was something that happened and a lot less corruption. Maintain police accountability would be a major thing. Also, just how victims are told about what's happening and updated. Like I said before, I was never given a reason as to why he was never interviewed. So just having that legal accountability and the openness of discussing a case because it does involve people's lives and it's their family, I believe that you owe that to victims. And finally, there's so many, but I'm just going to pick the most important ones. One would be special support, especially for children. In my case, I didn't have any support. I didn't have parents. So my life could have really gone one of two ways. Thankfully, it went the positive way. But I believe there needs to be a real focus on children that are victims of crimes because they're really left out of the picture a lot of the time. And finally, I would just say that mandatory training about domestic violence is critical in all areas of the justice system, from police to the coroner's court, just so we can have people making informed decisions with that background and the knowledge about how tricky coercive control is. What are some things you wish everyone knew so we had a better understanding of abuse and domestic violence? You can know a nice person and they can be a completely different person behind closed doors. Just because you know someone doesn't discount the fact that they could be violent. Unless you live with someone, you're never going to know the true intricacies of a relationship. The second thing would be, it shouldn't be, why didn't she leave? It should be, why did he abuse her? That should be the framing and that should be the question. Research shows that there are over 20 reasons why people don't leave. One of the biggest ones is poverty and being homeless. So that question infuriates me and I wish that it would be reframed as why did he abuse her? The third point would be that nobody's immune from it happening to them. And I find that people that think that they're immune from it and that it would never happen could be really vulnerable because they can trick themselves into thinking that would never happen to them. No one would ever do that to me. And their ego kind of gets in the way of realizing that they are being abused and they are being manipulated. I have so much fire inside me and so many things I need to say, particularly about the whole justice system. This is where my career trajectory has gone. It's influenced my life greatly because I now work in the domestic violence space at a women's domestic violence charity, but also with the Teen and Career Project. I have no plans to ever stop doing this and ever stop talking about what needs to change and helping future victims. Where I work, it's a three-pronged approach. There's actually a refuge which houses families who have escaped domestic violence. 
Then there's an outreach centre which works with current or past victims of domestic violence and helping them through that process and navigating life before or after domestic violence. How are you going to leave? What's your steps? What's your iPhone security? Just simple things like that can help people during that process. Then there's the operational side. That's what I'm in. I help people when they are going to their new house, setting up the furniture and we do a really cool thing which most other services don't do is there's no time limit that you can be involved with the service. We will help you to when you have your home and you'll get everything that you need will be there through the whole process. So that's really cool and I love doing that stuff. The hardest thing for people to do is leave. Once you make the decision to leave, although it might take you a few times and it might be really difficult, that's the best thing you'll ever do for yourself. It'll make the most positive impact towards your life. Even just thinking that thought, planting that seed in your brain that you want to leave and you are going to leave is going to change the rest of your life, whether it takes you a year, two years. I just hope that anyone that's listening that is going through a similar situation, it's not in your head. Your experiences are valid. You need to put your safety first and your family's safety first. It's hard to say in a few sentences, but it's the first step to the rest of your life. There are really great support services out there. And I would encourage everyone to do their research, talk to someone about how they can leave and what they can do. There are professionals that help people leave. That is their literal job. So getting in contact with someone that can provide you that advice and support will really change your life for the better. For missing persons, for families especially, it is, in my experience, your sole job to propel public awareness and make the public care about your family member. Unfortunately, it is your job to advocate for them and to push the case. There's a lot of really great resources. There's one in Australia. It's called Missing Persons Advocacy Network. They have a what to do when your loved one is missing, how to guide. They provide a lot of advice on how to actually deal with the media as well because, as we've spoken about it, the media is really important for these types of cases too. And it can be beneficial. So just approaching that in the right way. I encourage everyone to put their advocacy pants on, although it can be hard. There's a lot of support out there as well for that. It's still in the works, but I'm working on something for children, specifically focusing on domestic violence. It's not out there in the world yet, but if it ever does come to fruition, it will be on my website, which is the Tina Greer Project, whether that be TikTok, YouTube. Across all platforms, it's just the Tina Greer Project. Just creating awareness is what I love doing. I don't plan to ever stop, so I'll always be in this space and around with the Tina Greer Project. You're amazing. I commend you for everything that you have done and will continue to do in honor of your mom and so many other people. Thank you for being willing to chat with me. I'm seriously so thankful that you've created a podcast like this. I don't actually like listening to True Crime myself because it's quite intense, but I listened to your episode today. Thank you for leading by example and creating this space for people to share their stories. It's really important stuff. According to Domestic Violence Awareness Organization Mission Australia, on average, one woman every nine days and one man every month is killed by a current or former partner in Australia. According to the same statistics, one in six Australian women have experienced physical or sexual violence in their relationships. Similarly, 
one in six Australian girls experience physical or sexual violence before the age of 15. According to the World Health Organization, 137 women across the world are killed every day by a partner or member of their own family. That makes a total of 50,000 women a year murdered by a loved one. In order to combat this terrifying statistic, the World Health Organization and 13 other UN and bilateral agencies have published a framework for preventing violence against women aimed at educating policymakers. The publication, entitled Respect Women, is available in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. Mr. Nassar, you are no longer called a doctor. You have been stripped of your medical license, and soon you'll be known by your prison number for what I hope to be the maximum sentence. I find this fitting as I was a thing, inhuman, or just a number to you. I will no longer be known as a number. I will be known as Dr. Daniel Moore. That was my way of saying a giant fuck you. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.